Hi, I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. Each season, we sit down with writers from across the genre spectrum. So subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So Susie, we're going to be talking with Brandy June today, and um, she's written um, a novel that retells uh, Rumpelstiltskin. So I was really curious if you have particular fairy tales that you remember most from when you were a kid or, or, or even ones that you particularly enjoy reading to your son now. Well, let me tell you, my son is two and all we do is read fairy tales, that and the Beatrix Potter books. So it's been really interesting kind of reading these again, because I'm finding that this collection of stories, like in my memory, I grew up with the Disney movies. I've read some of the Grimm's and I see the difference, but the, the Ladybug books kind of straddle that line where some stories like Sleeping Beauty are super Disney-fied and they fall in love immediately, happily ever after, that kind of thing. And then there's stories like Chicken Lickin, which are super brutal. It's like the don't be a lemming story. And spoiler alert, the Fox family eats all of them at the end of the story. <laughs> and it's just the picture is just like this den full of feathers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to scar my child? But yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting to kind of revisit them as an adult and get the moral right away and then see where the line is between the, there's no beauty in the beast in the collection, but between the beauty and then like the beastly elements of the fairy yeah. tales as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, you're right that there's that there's always like this such a difference between the way we think of fairy tales. It's either those very Disneyfied ones that are that are so kid friendly and and so uplifting, or the really dark origins of uh, of like the grim fairy tales. You know, there are times when I'm reading some of these books, obviously for the first time, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to turn the page. Or do I need to rephrase this? Because like Rapunzel, he thinks she's dead. And he's like, I guess I'll just throw myself out this window. And you're like, wow, that got dark really fast. This is not what you want to be explaining to your two-year-old just yet. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, look at the pretty flowers instead. (laughs) How about you? My my, my older daughter definitely enjoyed uh, certain aspects of like the Disney the Disney fairy tales. And we have a lot of the fairy tale books that, that use like the, the Disney images and things like that. But one thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about different fairy tales is the thing I remember most about um, fairy tales from, from being a kid myself is I loved the ones, anything that had like a forest or a woods in it. That's the thing that I remember most is just like that allure of going into the woods and finding something magical or, or getting lost and, and ultimately like finding some sort of um, some sort of danger, which, you know, kind of gets back to some of the fairy tale origins where they were originally these stories that were about supposed to warn kids about, about the dangers out there in the world. Um, but at the same time, the woods also have like such an appeal in some of these stories too. Absolutely. It's where all the mystical creatures live. You know, we'll, we'll talk to Brandy, but that's where Nor meets the fairy for the first yeah. time. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I find like when my students do some kind of fairy tale retelling or they remix a fairy tale it's usually those are the elements like the mysterious forest and the choices of three you see all those patterns that you like you've forgotten about since you were a kid like three or 13 or whatever the numbers are appearing and that's so interesting yeah my students um in in one of my classes my students always do um like a flash fiction fairy tale retelling and it's so it's one of the most fun assignments to to see what kind of things they come up with and what fairy tales were most interesting to them and the ones that they kind of want to go back to and revisit. 
Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to, to talk with Brandy about, about her novel. Brandy June is the author of Goldspun, a fairy tale retelling of Rumpelstiltskin that gives the princess more agency. Welcome, Brandy. Thanks so much for being here. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. So we've given kind of like the elevator pitch for Goldspun, but could you tell us a little bit more about what makes this retelling unique and how you approached writing it? So I, I've always loved fairy tales. I especially love like the old versions of the fairy tales just because they're kind of dark and creepy. But what I found about them is you get such archetypal characters. You get very flat, you know, this character's all good. This character's all bad. And when I was writing Goldspun, I really wanted to give the Miller's daughter more agency. So in the original, you know, she's sort of like this delicate, perfect, young woman who, you know, doesn't really have any say in her life. You know, her dad is the one that says she can spin gold. Her, uh, the king forces her to spin the gold. So I wanted to see what would it look like if she's the one who had, you know, a lot of the agency, pretty much all the agency in her actions. And to get there, I was like, well, if she's a con artist, then really it's, you know, it's her fault that people think she can spin gold because she is literally telling them that. So she doesn't always make the best decisions, but they are her decisions to make. So I really wanted to start there and then, you know, see how she could evolve as, as a character, as a person, starting as this con artist who, you know, she has her reasons for doing it. She's trying to help her family, but it's still not a good thing to try to con people. So that's, that's really where I started and really where it differs from the old original fairy tale is that she is not this blameless saint of a person she's a a more realistic person she's very much I love gray heroes and she definitely has good traits and she has bad traits just hearing you talk a little bit about the original Miller's daughter it just makes me think of like how how so often that's the role that women play in these original fairy tales too it's not just from Stiltskin. this um just like thinking about the role of women in fairy tales in general that could have described so many different fairy tale women, right? Mm-hmm. I, this is a podcast that so you can't uh, see that I am nodding super emphatically. <laughs> yeah, and I found it fascinating that she doesn't even get a name in the fairy tale. Like she's always referred to as the Miller's daughter. And this is a fairy tale specifically about the importance of names. Obviously, Rumpelstiltskin, very important name. And here she doesn't even have one. So the first thing I wanted to do was give her a name. So I did. So I named her Nor. I'm curious, aside from Rumpelstiltskin, we've seen on your blog, you've done some writing about other um, fairy tales as well. What are some other tales or mythologies you've enjoyed either researching or writing about? Let's see. I I had a lot of fun. I wrote a short story about Sleeping Beauty as a zombie, which was fun. Um, Again, I really like taking the, the original tale and sort of twisting it. And for that, it was like, well, okay, so she's asleep or dead or unconscious depending on the the version and the telling and then comes back what would be things that would do that and so I kind of turned it into a short horror story Uh, so that was that was a lot of fun I also really enjoy mythology I've done a couple of plays unfortunately I finished a play and then COVID hit and it hasn't really gone anywhere but it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth which is one of the very few times I've found that a human falling in love with a Greek god ends well. Usually it ends poorly. <laughs> with uh, not only your novel, but you know your plays and your short stories where you're using 
fairy tales or mythology as inspiration. How do you balance kind of like the light and the dark, you know, like the grim version versus the disnified versions that a lot of people are familiar with, or, or even like you say, um, with, with Cupid and Psyche finding that, that one story where things end up turning out well, instead of Mm -hmm. everything going horribly wrong. It's definitely, it's definitely something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I'd say, I don't always get it right on the first go. I, I try to always give myself permission to write a really messy first draft and not worry too much if I'm too, too bright and cheerful or too dark and dreary. I just tell myself, okay, you just need to get the story out there and then you can revise it. And especially for Goldspun, there were times where I'm like, okay, this, this area is a little too dark or, you know, maybe these things come together a little too perfectly. How can I kind of maybe put a little, uh, a little wrench in the gears that's about as technical as I get (laughs) I feel like uh throwing a zombie in there would have would have thrown some things off as well I would just I would love Mm -hmm. to I should read that story um that you're talking about Sleepy Beauty I feel like the prince's face would just be absolutely shocked no glowing looks when she wakes up and (laughs) yeah that that one and and I guess also determining the tone of the story as well because that story I definitely went in going okay, this is going to be a dark, you know, zombie horror story. Whereas Goldspun, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a fun YA fantasy that will be, you know, not dark and dreary, but also not, you know, Disney's version. Absolutely. That's kind of like one of the, one of the advantage of those, those original archetypes and fairy tales is it leaves you so much room to, to kind of put a very different tone or very different spin on it. I think that is exactly why I love retelling so much and why I think they're so popular is you have sort of this wonderful blend of there's something very familiar with these the roots of these stories that have been told and retold for hundreds and hundreds of years so there's something that's you know very almost sacred about that but then with a good retelling you get that element but you also have this totally new experience and these new characters that you get to live with for a while. I also love how it not just complicates each person, like giving Nor, giving Nor some grayness to her character, but also complicating her relationships with everybody else around her. Because yeah, everything is so black and white or so 2D in the fairy tales, but you have so much leverage to build and complicate and flip things on their heads with all of their relationships. Yeah, I I love complicated relationships because I think that's what makes them interesting and I think that makes them more relatable. I don't know anyone in my life that I have a relationship with that isn't a little complicated, except maybe my dog. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a really fun way to to jump off. And in the same way that I made Nor more complicated, I also wanted to make Pell, who's the Rumpelstiltskin character, as well as Casper, who's the King character. I wanted to make them complicated and empathetic as well in the original I think the king to me he comes off as the villain of spin this gold or you die sounds terrible so I wanted to come up with a way that he would seem more empathetic and the way I got into that was well what if he he sees Nor pulling a con and is trying to call her out on it so he's not he is also by far not perfect Uh, I don't have any perfect characters, but at least that way he's a little more um, relatable. And I made Pell into this 
mysterious, beautiful fairy boy so that they have a lot more of a relationship than just this creepy creature that is helping her for the cost of a firstborn child. I feel like that's always the cost. I was just reading uh, uh, Rapunzel with my son this morning, and that's always, always just give us your firstborn child. Mm -hmm. In the version I read, it's because the the mother wants some salad (laughs) from Witch's Garden. And she's like, is it worth it? (laughs) So, all right. So you mentioned your Psyche and Cupid play. Can you talk a little bit more about your playwriting and maybe some of these other plays, like Good Morning Princess, that sort of flip expectations on their head or fairy tales on their heads? Yeah. So I got into playwriting because actually I, my theater, my background is in theater. So I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor. Uh, I went to school for theater. I eventually got into marketing. I needed something a little more reliable to pay my bills, but I still always loved theater and participated. I ended up joining a theater troupe that did short play nights. Cause at that point I didn't imagine I could write a whole play or or a whole book, but I'm like, oh, I can write five pages. I could do a short play. And that really got my love of playwriting. And I, it was something magical I saw about writing words on a page and then seeing them on stage was just really fantastic for me. So from that, I actually did start writing longer plays and kind of a parallel path. I started writing prose as well, which then you get my books for the plays. My first standalone play was about Oscar Wilde. And that I actually think I have a link to the the first short 10 minute version of it up on my website. And for that, I kind of wanted to twist the idea of, you know, he was such a witty writer. What would it look like if his character Dorian Gray was speaking to him? And I said it at the end of his life, which, you know, in real life was very tragic and kind of pulled some of the quotes from his work into the play so that the characters are speaking it. So you get a lot of his, you know, a lot of the way he speaks and the way he jokes, even though it was a very dark play. So that was one way I was kind of reimagining what Dorian Gray would look like speaking to his creator. It sounds like that like you were a playwright before you became a no- before you tried novels or short stories, right? They kind of went parallel, but okay, I definitely yeah. started. I got more serious about playwriting first, and I think in part because I was doing short play nights. So you would write a play and then see it up on stage a couple weeks later, whereas the novel itself took me years to write and edit and critique and get published. I think the process for writing prose was a much longer process, but I was, I sort of started with playwriting and then kind of was also then doing short stories and then coming up with longer pieces, but kind of parallel. Do you feel like your, your approach to like writing a first draft changes from one genre to another a lot? Not too much. I generally, I generally outline first and then we'll write. And as I mentioned, as rough as I feel needs to be, to just get it out there. Where it changes after that is usually if I'm writing a novel, I will go back and do a reverse outline, which is an outline of what I actually wrote, because a lot of times that changes from the original outline. And that gives me a good jumping off point to start the big edits. Because if I look at my whole book, if I look at 80,000 words, I'm overwhelmed. If I look at three pages of plot, I'm like, okay, big beats need to change here and here, or you know, this part maybe should be moved. 
So that's how I go with prose. With a play, you're only dealing with, you know, maybe an hour and a half, maybe two hours at most of dialogue. So what I like to do for that is get some friends down and actually like sit down and read it out loud. So like a, like a staged reading, only everyone's usually just sitting and eating snacks as well. And that's really helpful for me to actually hear it out loud. So you mentioned a little bit earlier, you've got, um, you've got a marketing degree and it's an MBA in entertainment marketing, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Can, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, because I think you're the first person we've talked to that has that specific degree. And, you know, we've got a lot of writers out there with very different day jobs kind of supporting their writing habit. Um, So can you tell us about what you do and maybe some of the trends that you're seeing right now in the films, uh, or sorry, in the field? Yeah. And, and actually films is correct. I do marketing for kids and family films and actually a lot of anime as well for Shout Factory. I I work in their kids and family department. And the way that went about is, as I mentioned, I went to undergrad for theater. After a few years post-college, I was like, I really don't like kind of these, whatever day job I can scrape together. So I decided to go back to school. I wanted something that was more uh, consistent, consistent work, but I also wanted something that was at least as creative as I could imagine finding a job in a more corporate setting. And I'm not saying that marketing is it, but marketing is definitely, I feel, one of the more creative corporate jobs. And so I went back to school. I got my master's in business and I came from an entertainment background. I had done a little bit of uh, TV production work. And so that was kind of naturally my choice was to stick with entertainment and also focus on marketing. And then I got into this film this film marketing position. So what I do is we usually get films after they are already made. And so it's our job to distribute and market them. So I'll put together selling material. Uh, I'll oversee trailers if we need it. I will work very closely with our team to create ad plans and basically give a film the best awareness possible so that it has the best shot of doing possible when it uh, is released. So that is... um, that is what I do during the day. And then usually it's before, you know, before work or lunch breaks. A lot of times I'll put away big chunks of time on the weekend for writing. So this sort of brings up my next question with, with marketing. I feel like every time there's a new platform that's introduced, authors are said, go on this, go on that, go on another. You're on TikTok and it seems like you're pretty active on that. So can you tell us a little bit, like what's the through line from old school Cinderella to book talk? How do we make it from the Grimm's brothers to book talk or how, how is book talk working for you? I, I enjoy it. I'm having a lot of fun. I don't know if it's been huge on my uh, personal account as far as shifting the needle with awareness of my book. I hope so. But really I went in on it when I first started getting into it. It wasn't, I wasn't even planning on creating an account. I was just getting really interested to see what book talkers were doing. And it was getting close to the time when Goldspun came out. And at that time, it was last June. It was heavy into COVID. Um, don't go out. We're not. We're canceling all in-person events. So I was looking at different marketing ways to get some awareness for Goldspun before my release date. And what I actually ended up doing was seeing these all these wonderful book talk book talkers who did all these book reviews and. A lot of it was YA fantasy. And so what I did is I talked to my publisher about like, hey, if I reach out to 
these certain book talkers and offer them a copy of Gold Spun to review my book. Well, you send them a copy and I work with a CamCat Books. They're a smaller publisher, but they're very enthusiastic uh, and really excited to try different things. So they're like, sure. So what initially started was me just reaching out to some book talk book reviewers saying, hey, I'm going to be a debut author. Some of the other videos I've seen on your account makes me think you'd like this book. Would you like me to send you a copy? And that's really how I got involved. And then I was like, well, I'm already in now. I might as well create my own account, which is mostly videos about either books or a lot of videos of my pets. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, um, the, the last time I went to a bookstore, w- one of the things that surprised me was there was a whole table that was just labeled book talk. And I was like, oh, wow, we're like really into <laughs> like this combination between social media and marketing and, and, and writing now. Mm-hmm. It was it was kind of it was neat to see something like that up there. I had one last question that's that, that's going in a very different direction, but I was a little curious about it. You mentioned on your website that you do aerial arts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, oh, I love it so much. Unfortunately, I'm kind of on a bit of a hiatus. I have a chronic shoulder issue that has me on the sidelines right now. But it was something, there was a studio I found near my place that does different pole dance and aerial art. So I started going there and got really into Lyra, which is the big big metal hoop and a little bit into silks and trapeze and ropes and pole dance and just found it was a really fun, it was a fun way to work out. I really need to enjoy working out or I won't do it. (laughs) So that that's really how I got involved. It's nothing professional. I don't do, yeah, I don't really perform in front of audiences as with it, but it is something that I really enjoyed. I found that studios are super supportive. So I'm hoping to get a little more back in once, once my shoulder heals up. Well, yeah, there, there was something about, um, you know, reading about some of your writing you do with fairy tales. And I was like, of course, she's doing something totally unique and different for her <laughs> for fun as well. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Brandy. It was really great talking with you. Wonderful. I am so glad to, to be able to be here and speak with you guys today. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.